You are Locked On Packers, your daily Green Bay Packers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. We're going to be okay. It is time. It is time. I feel like we can win the table. We're going to do it. You are Locked On Packers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am Peter Bukowski, and I cover the Packers for SB Nation. I cover the NFL for Fan Sided and Pro Football Weekly. And you can follow me on Twitter at Peter underscore Bukowski. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Locked On Packers. And you can find all the podcast content at LockedOnPackers.com. It is Friday. No rookie orientation today. But we are going to talk about this draft class. Just not in a specific kind of way. We're going to talk about the day three players. And one of the reasons why we're going to do that is because I have been very positive about this offseason. And I think with good reason. I think there's a lot of, of things to be excited about if you're a Packers fan. And I like a lot of what Green Bay did with this draft. I think they got multiple players on day three that I would have taken on day two. They got a player on day two I would have taken on day one. So from that standpoint, it's a home run. That being said, I'm going to do one of the things that, frankly, I have been criticized for doing on this show, and that is offer a word of caution. There have been some some people who have, have stopped listening, allegedly, to the show because they wanted a fanboy podcast, and that's fine. If that's what you want, go find it. Live your truth. I don't care. I appreciate those of you who are listening very much. And I would like to think that one of the reasons why you listen is because I am willing to say and be critical of this team. And I'm willing to suggest that maybe certain good things are not as good as they appear, or maybe some positive thing is not as positive, maybe as it seems. But at the same time, I don't think anyone likes a doom and gloom person. I'm not, I'm just not that guy. By nature, I'm an optimist. And so I try and countervail those things. I try and make sure that there's balance. I always want you to have the best information. I'm not going to say that I'm always the most objective. I try to be. But I think one of the reasons why this show resonates with people and why Twitter is so great and why people frankly read places like Acme Packing Company or Fansided is because it comes from a perspective of someone who is passionate about the team. And that passion can sometimes be blinding. I'll freely admit that. I would would offer that I think it, it has made me more critical of certain players and certain coaches and certain situations. I think if you if you are if you're a little bit more dispassionate, maybe you can accept certain things that a fan perspective cannot. And so I, I think it's important to say, let's pump the brakes on some of this stuff if if it is appropriate to do so. And so I'm gonna spend a portion of the show explaining to you why you should be cautious before believing that any of these players taken in the mid to late rounds are going to be instant impact players or impact players at all. But then I'm going to make the case that they can. And it's a it's an interesting balance in this case 
because NFL history says one thing and Packers history says another thing. And so the, the trick is trying to balance those two things out. How do we do that? Well, that's the trick. And that is that is always the trick in scouting and evaluating. Historical data is important because it allows us to look at trends. And so Green Bay, this is why this, the thresholds exist. The thresholds say the types of players who tend to succeed follow these physical traits. That's important data to have. And that those are important studies to do. What are the tra- because evaluation is about traits. It's not about production necessarily. What do they do well? What do they not do well? And what can we coach them up at? What are their traits that are translatable? And so in order to properly evaluate, you have to know what to care about. Because if you're Al Davis and all you care about is a guy who runs 4-3, then you're prioritizing something that doesn't necessarily translate into success in the NFL. And we know, for example, speed at receiver is the most overrated aspect of playing the position. There is no correlation between speed and receiver success. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a threshold at which you say, okay, this guy can't play receiver, but a guy who runs 4-3 is not any better than a guy who runs 4-4 in a vacuum. Just isn't. Statistically speaking, history says there is no correlation at a certain point. Now, obviously, again, there is a threshold, and those are important. But, for example, there is this there was this strange thing before the draft. Oh, the Browns, they never get the quarterback position right, so they're going to screw this one up. That's fun to joke about, but their draft history is irrelevant. It has no bearing because it's a whole new scouting staff, and Hugh Jackson hasn't been there long enough to account for a quarter century of sucking. That that history of drafting poorly at, at the quarterback position in particular, irrelevant. It, ha- it has no bearing and should have no bearing on the way that the Browns put together their roster. So it's important to understand what, what the data tells us when we look at historical trends. Before we move on, I want to remind you about our Pro Football Focus Edge subscription giveaway. Put your name and your Twitter handle in a review of this podcast on iTunes, and you'll be entered to win a Pro Football Focus Edge subscription. That's a $39.99 value. Gets you access to player grades, tools, charts, Really now is when the fantasy football data starts to come in really handy. They have outstanding fantasy football data and articles to help you win your draft. Those those big boards are coming out soon because the drafts are going to be here before you know it, your fantasy draft. You need this data, which means you need to leave a review of this podcast on iTunes with your name and your Twitter handle in it. And here's the reason I bring up the preamble. In a conversation with The Athletic, Former Eagles executive Joe Banner told Shale Kapadia that they did a study with the Eagles. And they went in, the, they looked at all the players in the recent years. Now, this is a couple years ago because Joe Banner hasn't been there in a few years. All the players who were taken five, six, seven, those rounds. And they said, where, what did we miss? And this is, this is a tremendous process by them. How do these players succeed? Because if you're being drafted in the fifth, sixth, or seventh round, it means 
that the entire league did not think you were draftable earlier. And that doesn't mean that they were wrong necessarily. And this is something that I think fans and even media and teams themselves often get confused with. There are players who succeed above and beyond their talent or above and beyond where they should. Some of it is fit. Some of it is personal growth. Some of it is coaching. Some of it is is improvement. And some of it is the league just missed. And you can be a guy who succeeds, but you were risky when it happened, whether it was because of injury or size or all kinds of things. And in fact, this is a good way to say, what are those risk factors? Which which players have a higher variance is another way of looking at it. And so what he found is these players that succeeded, that were mid to late round picks, fell into one of three categories. They were either from a small school or they were hurt their last year in school or they were undersized in some way. And this all makes sense. If you're a small school player, it is so hard to determine if your success is because you're just playing other bad football players or if you really are that talented to dominate those games. And there have been cases where guys have not dominated even at small school levels and gone on to produce. So it's not just did they produce at the small school level. It is that those small school players can be difficult to evaluate because there is such a variance in the quality of opponent. And so you say, okay, that guy, like I, I thought Karun Reed, who played at Princeton, was just, he was a beast. He was a monster. I thought this is a, this is a day two player. He's not very good. And he dominated a bunch of scrubs. And so how do you how do you project that? How do you account for that? It's really, really hard. And so that's why you see some of these late round flyers from teams, smaller schools, great athletes usually. Now the, now the Senior Bowl does a good job of trying to find these guys if they're seniors and get them to the Senior Bowl so that they can go up against some other top-level talents. There was a player from Fort Hayes State this year that was drafted, and he went to the Senior Bowl and played great. And it was one of those things where the teams got to see, okay, he can handle this. And he went on day two. The injury is another mitigating factor here. If they were hurt their last year and you weren't able to see their full development, then maybe you were fooled by that lack of productivity, especially, so let's say Josh Jackson in week four gets hurt and he was set up to have this enormous season and he was going to show off all of these skills, these ball skills, this this instinctive, talented player gets hurt. Does he go? I mean, he already fell because of the bad 40 time. Let's say it's a, let's say it was a, a wrist injury or something he'd be recovered from by the time the combine rolls around. Does he go in the second round? Probably not. He probably goes in the fifth round. Four four games as a starter? Sixth round, seventh round maybe. So that's, that's an obvious and intuitive place to say, yeah, teams probably miss on those guys. But they're not really missing is part of the point here. Those guys are risky. It is, it is not necessarily bad process to avoid risky players. Part of the, the draft is mitigating risk. So there are the guys that go at the top of the draft are not just the most talented, they're the least risky. And there are certainly players who have a ton of upside who aren't risky. And there are there are players who are risky that don't have a lot of upside. It's not necessarily about us upside, it's about risk. What is your ceiling? What is your floor? And how sure of that are we? Well, that doesn't that doesn't mean you're going to be right. 
but you're you're trying to mitigate risk. And so the injury in particular is one of those places where it is so hard to judge. And then the third bucket here, undersized. This is a great example of why process matters because it is a gamble to get an undersized player. It just is because a lot of players simply, I mean, there's a reason why we have these, these standards because guys under a certain size generally don't work out. And so if they do, it's because they're outliers and you don't use high draft capital on outliers. You just don't. Now, I think there are certain positions where you can make some exceptions. Clearly, quarterback, one of those. Russell Wilson should have gone higher. The height wasn't an issue, and he had so many other qualities. Drew Brees never should have fallen as far as he did. Baker Mayfield went number one. I wrote about it for Pro Football Weekly. It seems like the worm is turning on that one. But undersized linebackers, undersized defensive linemen, undersized receivers, undersized running backs. Those guys are going to continue to fall in a lot of cases. Now, part of that is the evolution of the league. And so smaller, more versatile defenders in particular is going to be something that I think teams are going to target earlier. Maybe that will change. And again, by virtue of when Joe Banner was with the Eagles, this is this is a relatively new data, but not the newest data. And none of Green Bay's guys this year except Kendall Donerson in the seventh round, fits that mold. All of them went to big-time schools. Even Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who went to UCF, who went to USF, that's not a Power 5 school, but that's a major college program. James Looney, who went to Cal, Cal is not a powerhouse school, but they play in the Pac-12. So even the, the sort of borderline players, obviously Equinemius St. Brown He's a guy who played at an independent school, but it's Notre freaking Dame. Green Bay didn't follow this rule. And and when you look at a position like receiver where they picked three guys and it is just assumed that one of them is going to pop, the numbers are even more disconcerting. Since 2011, of the receivers taken 133 or later, so that would include Jamon Moore and all the other guys that have been taken in this class, there have been 98 receivers in that range. Four of them, four of them started as rookies half their team's games. Four. Those aren't good odds. Now, that's as a rookie. That doesn't mean none of those players will ever be good. I don't think we should expect any of the guys that Green Bay has drafted to be starters. Contributors, yes. Starters, no. Geronimo Allison is the starter on the outside opposite Devontae Adams until proven otherwise. Unless one of these guys comes in and just rips the roof off. But Jamon Moore and, and EQ in particular are the most talented. They're the, they're the most raw. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is a little bit older, a little bit more experienced, but is not the most skilled. He's big and fast. So where does this team stand? What is the likelihood that one of these guys is going to come in and, and produce right away? Well, it's not very good. Not good odds. Now, that doesn't mean that that they're screwed. It's up to the Green Bay coaches to come in and find ways to make these guys productive because Green Bay needs them to be. And one of the biggest criticisms I had of Mike McCarthy over the last couple years is his lack of flexibility and creativity with his personnel. He waited too long to incorporate Brett Hundley's running ability. He was not nearly creative enough in using Ty Montgomery when he had the opportunity. 
I thought over the last few years, the play calling and the formation usage has really had really fallen off. It was just like 11 personnel, 11 personnel, 11 personnel, same formation, same routes. And one of the biggest problems I had in 2014 was the way that Devontae Adams and Jeff Janis were used. They clearly thought Devontae Adams was the better player. That's why he was starting. And they clearly didn't think Jeff Janis could play. And rather than use Devontae Adams and let him work through it, they would bench him at times for Janis, who they knew couldn't play. Now, on the other hand, they also knew that Jeff Janis had a very particular set of skills, very Liam Neeson, and they still couldn't find ways to let him do the thing. Get him on slants, get him on crossers, get him on go routes. In breaking routes. And I I don't care if the defense knows he's going to come in and run those routes. I don't care. Get him on the field, especially in 2015. When, when Adams is hurt and Randall Cobb is, is battling injuries and, and frankly proved he's not a, a top-tier receiver in the league as a number one option, how can you not find opportunities to get Janice open? Is that an indictment of Jeff or the coaches? I think a little bit of both. But so it's going to be up to these coaches. And I think Joe Philbin brings the right mentality. This offense was much more diverse, much more creative, and and frankly, in some ways, more productive when Philbin was around. They need to find a way to get production out of these receivers right away. That They don't need one player to come in and become a star or even a, a starter. What they need is the combination of the three of them to fill a role and do a thing. If they can do that, Green Bay will have gotten their money's worth. You're listening to Locked On Packers on the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one local daily sports podcast network. Be sure to catch up on everything around the league with Locked On NFL and Locked On NFL Draft. Now, the interesting thing about all this data and all of these studies is it doesn't seem to apply to Green Bay because the players that they've hit on on day three Micah Hyde, Matt Flynn, Desmond Bishop, Johnny Jolly, Corey Lindsley. They weren't small school guys, not undersized, not hurt their last year in school. They don't fit the mold. They don't fit the model. Jeff Janis is a small school player, and you, and for a seventh rounder, he's had a successful career. And without knowing if if that would qualify as success for Joe Banner, I would I would think it might, but I would I was. I was assuming you're talking about starter caliber players. And so the fact that Green Bay didn't follow that that model, that pattern, suggests that maybe we should take it into less account. There are studies that suggest the draft is random, that, that no team is really that much better than any other team at drafting, and that really it's about the team that has the most picks, has the best chance of getting the best players, because this is a lottery. And... Even if we assume that's true, and I don't, I, I, th- I just think there's something the data is missing. The, the good teams, the smart teams, the Seattles and the Green Bays and the New Englands and the Baltimores, they trade down, they add picks because they know that, that there's variance and then every player is a risk. There's no such thing as no risk. But when you look at a list like that, I mean, I just named six players who came in on, on day three in the last 10 years, less than that even, and were successful that don't fit the trends of the broader league when it comes to finding success. One time, okay. Two or three, eh, but five or six? 
I mean, C.J. Wilson, who came in and was a quality rotational defensive lineman for Green Bay, went to East Carolina. That's not a small school. Not by, not by college football standards. A 2,000-yard rusher came from East Carolina. I mean, Justin Hardy, who, who is a rotation receiver for the Falcons, I mean, this is, that, that is not the small school situation. That is not what they're looking at. They're, we're talking about Delaware. We're talking about South Dakota State. We're talking about Saginaw Valley State. Those are small school prospects. D2 players. Ivy League guys. Green Bay is good at this. They have the best scouting department in the league. There's a reason they have for 20 years. Remember, Brian Gutekinds hired by Ron Wolf in the 90s. Elliot Wolf has a senior front office position in Cleveland. When his dad was in charge, when Brett Favre was winning the Super Bowl in 96, Elliot Wolf was in grammar school. And now he's helping run a front office. I mean, this front office has churned out quality evaluators for years, and there's clearly something about their process that just makes them better at this than everyone else. And so if there's going to be a case that one of these guys is going to hit, now none of the none of the players I mentioned are superstars or even stars. Micah Hyde is a Pro Bowl player. Desmond Bishop in his prime was a borderline Pro Bowl player. Corey Lindsley is a very solid center. If, the, if Green Bay got a Corey Lindsley-level receiver from one of these guys... That would be very good for this offense, especially if it is to provide some speed down the field. That's all they need. They need a, they need a B minus or a B receiver because Devontae Adams is the number one and Jimmy Graham is going to contribute. He's going to get a ton of targets. They don't need someone to come in and catch 80 passes for them next year. They just need a solid B minus B player and their history, which works in direct opposition to NFL history, suggests they can do it. Now, again, that doesn't mean they will. This is all just more information for you to process. We're going to know more once the veterans get on the field, once we see these rookies, once we see them catching passes from Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Kaiser are going to be throwing back with EQ. So that is all going to be part of the equation as we evaluate these guys moving forward. We're going to continue to do that, continue with three shows a week next week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I, I just want to give you a heads up. There will not be a show on Memorial Day, but there will be a show. We're going to do that week. We're going to do Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. No show Memorial Day. And then we'll have two more shows that week. That'll all be as part of our discussion with mini camps, And we'll finally get to see some of these guys on the field together. Remember, Acme Packing Company, fansided.com, Pro Football Weekly, my Twitter feed, at Peter underscore Bukowski. Hit me up. DM me, tweet me, at me, whatever you want to do. Acme Packing Company. You can follow them on Twitter, fansided, Pro Football Weekly on Twitter. Definitely follow Locked on Packers on Twitter to make sure you don't miss a podcast. All of our content, remember, is at lockedonpackers.com so you can stay locked on Packers. Packers.